Hello and welcome to Borough Talks. Thanks for joining us. I'm Angela Clutton, your host of this series of discussions on food and food culture by Borough Market. They started out as online events and have now become this podcast series. And the one you're about to listen to features two really great food writers, Sabrina Geyer and John Wade, who were talking to me about all things to do with comfort food. We talked about sourdoughs and banana breads and baked beans and everything you could possibly imagine when it comes to comfort food. I really hope you enjoy listening to it. Welcome along, Sabrina and John. Hello, John. Lovely, lovely. And Sabrina, hooray. Are you, both, are you both unmuted? I think so. <laughs> you are. You are. Well done. Well, it's so lovely to see you both. Um, I'm just going to do little introductions um, to, to you lovely guys. So uh, John Waite, food writer and also cookery school teacher. And the cookery school is called John Waite's Kitchen, yes? It is. We might, we might change the name though soon because it's a oh. bit, I don't know, I don't like it anymore, John Waite. It's a bit, a bit obnoxious, I think. Does it, but you know, it says what it does. It John Waits Kitchen. Good <laughs> <laughs> school teacher, John Waits Kitchen currently. Um, law degree initially, and then uh, won a little show called Great British Bake Off, which changed uh, career direction, obviously, and uh, went to Cordon Bleu, gained a degree in patisserie, um, and done five cookery books, John, is that right? Yeah, I think it's five. Five, five you lost count. <laughs> five cookery books, um, as well as writing for lots of newspapers and publications as well, but five books, one of which, very appropriately for this topic, um, called Comfort, Food to Soothe Soul, um, and we did one at the Borough Market Cookbook Club. I don't know if anyone watching this or listening to this took part in that event, but we did Perfect Plates and Five Ingredients for the Cookbook Club, and it was um, it was joy, complete and utter joy. Um, sorry, John. You made quite a few things as well. Yeah, yeah, and that's a nice thing about the cookbook club. Everyone kind of makes stuff and shares experiences, which with a slight sort of side then takes me on to introducing Sabrina because we were meant to do um, one of your fabulous books for the summer party for the cookbook club, which then got cancelled because everything in the blooming world got cancelled. But we, we will do one, we will do one. Maybe even your latest one, which came out two weeks ago, a week ago. Yes, yeah, last Thursday. Uh, no, that, 10 days ago. I'm got... still counting in days. <laughs> <laughs> Which is simply um, already a bestseller and a complete triumph after a you know, mega weekend of storming through the absolute top of the Amazon charts and just being glorious. But it's, it's also, is this your fifth book too, Sabrina? It is. Five is clearly the magic number. <laughs> Five is clearly, I've got some catching up to do. Um, so Sabrina, also a chef, food writer, cookery teacher, um, one of the you know, leading voices in Middle Eastern cookery. Um, debut book, won lots of awards um, and bestsellers, I think, you know, amongst your other four books as well. And simply, as we say, out barely 10 days ago. Um, so hugely looking forward, guys, talking to you um, about this idea about comfort food. It's something that actually sprang out of a conversation that I had as part of the Borough Talks first series with Kimberly Wilson, who I don't know if you know Kimberly, she's a psychologist, yes. Um, actually, she did Bake Off. Was she on your series of Bake Off, John? No, no I think she was a, a couple of years after me, but she's, a, she's an incredible, uh, she's absolutely wonderful. She is incredible. And she was so interesting talking about nutrition and uh, mental health and brain health. And she, she mentioned something about comfort food. We're talking about it in the context of COVID and the pandemic and lockdown. And she was saying about cooking at home being one of the few remaining pleasures that we kind of had at that point and we talked a little bit about comfort food and it really made me want to probe into it a little bit more and think more from the cook's perspective it's like, no, she's very much a psychologist now think more from the cook's perspective like you guys about how we relate to food or how food can kind of bring us comfort um 
I mean, think about comfort food in its most basic way of being something which makes us feel better about ourselves and makes us feel better about the world. It's obvious as to why at the moment people have been reaching more for comfort food. Um, and I'm, so I suppose start off just asking you guys quite simply, if you felt during real lockdown, because obviously now things are, well, maybe not in the North actually. Or either one of you still in lockdown? No. No. Uh, Bolton, okay. Bolton want to go back into lockdown in Greater Manchester. Andy Burnham's kicking off. Okay. Uh, You're not. Okay. So, because John, John is um, in Lancashire and Sabrina is in Yorkshire. So I uh, just suddenly wondered if you guys were still in lockdown. But the question is really, when we were in real lockdown and when it all sort of first hit, did you feel yourselves having that reaction and being drawn to making more for yourself or for your family or for your social media world that kind of comfort food? Sabrina, maybe, maybe come to you first for that. So I think it's really interesting and, uh, and the answer is yes, because food for me anyway became the one thing that I could control and um, use to implement any kind of routine in my house because everything is lost, work is lost, none of us, nobody anywhere, anywhere in the world could tell head from tail. We were, you know, there was a lot of shell shock involved in, you know, what we were forced to do. And I think the only things that then became regular were the breakfast, the lunches and the dinners, because actually that's all we needed and had to do. And even then it was a bit of a scrape. Um, I think comfort food comes into it massively and probably explains what has now been coined as the Corona stone, which I, I don't know about anyone else, but mine is definitely more than just one. Um, but that is a, a because it started in the cooler months. But those are the things you go to, particularly migrating to sweet treats that maybe for me, not, not really a natural go-to unless I want to treat once in a blue moon. But you wanted sort of rib stick and comfort food because you need, you, 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 you know, you feel the lack of love because you don't have your friends. You can't see people. You're not engaging with people. You're not having the freedom to go out. So I think comfort food um, is a psychological, it's a sensory thing, really. And it can mean, you know, sometimes comfort food could be tomatoes on toast in, a sum in the summer. But, you know, it could also be like pie and mash or, or like a good Lancashire hot pot or something like that. It means different things to different people. But I think it's, it's really, really important because it takes you back to kind of grassroots foods that for a lot of people mean childhood in a sense mm. and also those comforts you know when maybe if you were lucky enough not in my house that your mum did some baking or your dad did some baking once in a blue moon you were given a treat and that you know that's why we draw on comfort food because it's a it's a kind of a memory hug I think that's it. Like, you know, I think you've sort of you know, distilled into that all the facets of why comfort food is something which really connects with us it's interesting that you say that you really you know felt like yourself john did, did you did you feel similarly when it all when it all kicked off it was a bit difficult for me i i really spiraled at the start of it um because of the cookery school and the business i kind of was really panicking about everything and so i found myself really reaching for things like cornflakes with cream on the cream on them and chocolate chips you know comfort food in its most let's say basic you know there's no no um, skill involved at all but I was eating bowlful after bowlful of cornflakes because I just I just felt so I guess hopeless, and um, yeah. And then I started baking more and really taking it off, uh, taking it to grandma's house and leaving little parcels at grandma's house and stuff like that. And as I, I found that as I started baking again, that kind of was the conduit back into a more regimented food um, daily food plan. So I started then having lunches, breakfast, lunches, dinners again. But yeah, at first the comfort food was a very kind of 
almost junk foody kind of comfort food. Well, that's very, okay. So you, you guys have just gorgeously summed up every aspect of what I want us to talk about over the next 40 minutes or so, because it is very much about, as you say, Sabrina, about the emotional connections, about nostalgia, about sort of, you know, thinking back to, uh, to memories that kind of, you know, you connect with something. And it's also about the doing and how that can bring you some solace by just sort of getting your head into a different space. But then there's also comfort you know, to be had about food that you don't make. There's just comfort simply in the eating of it. And I think those are all the things which is really interesting to, to tap into. So maybe let's first think about that uh, nostalgia element of it which i think can relate to whether you're making it or you know if you're buying it apparently you know sales of spaghetti hoops and you know things kind of you know, rocketed over the last few months because people just wanted those things they associate with childhood you know, john so you're saying that you know, the, corn, the cornflake thing like would you say that that was the case for you that that was a sort of a childhood thing i think so i do think so but for me cornflakes are also um a trigger as well because i kind of have a bit of a, a, a disorder when it comes to like food like that. I can't have it in the house. Um, and because everybody was bulk buying, I kind of panicked and just grabbed cornflakes and all and stuff. And then I found myself just completely eating loads of them. Oh, this little thing popped up. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. So <laughs> okay. So a poll. <laughs> this is so funny, right? So we're now running a poll. But who has tried cornflakes with cream on? <laughs> John, yeah. <laughs> John, you do seem to be in the minority here. Well, people need to just try it. But no, I, I guess it was a kind of very, it was very rudimentary, uh, childish kind of thing to do. Um, but I think it was all down to mental health. The, the pressures of everything um, meant that we just couldn't find any solace in anything other than just lying there watching trash TV yeah. and eating junk food, you know. Um, and did it make you feel better? No, in, that mo in that moment in that moment it kind of did but it's it's a very spontaneous instant a very transient uh cure isn't it well it's not a cure it's an alleviation and it kind of um it's it just yeah it didn't help at all really it made it worse and it was when i got back into that regimented uh plan of making lunches and taking things to grandma's and, and mm. you know, other people as well as myself it kind of um yeah that helps and then, but then going on to what sabrina said about making like uh, hot pots and things like that I did so much of that during lockdown, you know, loads of, primarily because I was meant to teach a Meze masterclass the week we went into lockdown at the cookery school. So I had about four kilos of minced lamb in the freezer <laughs> that I used. But, you know, make, using it and making those hot pots, it, it just, yeah, that's when the nostalgia, that kind of, those um, memories come flooding back and it becomes real comfort rather than a kind of masochistic comfort in a way, which the cornflakes, yeah. I think, cornflakes are very masochistic. Do you have a lot of conflicts, John? No, no, I can't have them in the house. Okay. I um, wonder how our poll's doing about how many people we've had. Mm, okay, I've... so 94% so of people who are watching this have never tried cornflakes with cream on. No, they've never, I... never lived, basically. No, 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 we're, we're all missing out. <laughs> um, but you know, what you were saying about uh, the sort of slightly momentary um, pleasure that's given you, know, something that actually um amused or maybe uh sabrina that you, you posted on instagram a couple months ago about um i hope you don't mind when well, you put it on instagram i'm like oh. i know would you mind me saying it when you no. put it on instagram? <laughs> um about you're having a cheeseburger and yeah. you did hashtag muck, muck regrets 
<laughs> oh right i was actually thinking about this because he was saying about the cornflakes it's the yeah. thing that it's like it's momentarily satisfying and and sometimes it's the idea of having something and, and even childhood memories like let's say when you have you know there's a whole host of junk food i absolutely love it and i i'm not ashamed to talk about it on social media like i don't pretend to be some virtuous salad picking wonder you know when i eat pot noodles and i eat corned beef sandwiches and i love it you know i won't call it filthy food it's just perfectly decent but you know it's once in a blue moon but the thing about mcdonald's is it was the first place you know after i'd stayed home for two and a half months trying to keep you know my mom who's uh um, in a higher higher risk category trying to keep her safe so she'd come to live with me and you know I just hadn't had anyone else cook a meal for the best part of three months for me so I was like McDonald's is open let's do it you know and so I'm, I'm really curious about this so was that the first place when you were given the option of going to kind of get some food that you didn't have to bloom and cook yourself was McDonald's the first place that you went for? It, it was because it was a drive-through. It okay. wasn't July the 4th when everybody everybody had opened. We'd heard like fast food places were opening and for us, still safer to take something from a drive-through than potentially go and, you know, God knows what you expose yourself to. Yeah. So I tell you what, that was for about five seconds, the best thing I tasted for a very long time. And then what happens with me is because I have this specific tummy issues so and nothing to not McDonald's, but I, you know, I don't have a gallbladder basically. So fatty, greasy food doesn't always get along with me. I have to be measured about it. And of course I got them, what I coined as the muck regrets basically. <laughs> and it's the instantaneous regret after you indulging in something that is a treat and perfectly permissible as part of the diet. But like, I mean, it, I, and I just said to my partner because you know, the kids, obviously his kids love, um, you know, McDee's because they're kids and, you know, they, so they, they can eat chicken nuggets until the cows come home. But I did say to him yesterday, I said, you know what? I think I've had enough McDonald's for several years now. I've only been like sort of three times, but I just, I can't, I just can't do it. But I think uh, it's a chemical thing, isn't it? That fats and carbs together kind of trigger something in the brain. A lot of, I used to work in McDonald's when I was a teenager and I remember the absurd questions people used to put to me. Is there something that they put in there that makes it more addictive? Like, do they put a seasoning in there? And I'm like, no, but apparently there is some stuff in high fat, high sugar, high salt foods that it does become addictive to teenagers, to growing growing children, you know? So, so yeah, there is, but I think again, it's nostalgia, but it's also the fact that it's the, even though there's not much love in it, but the love of having someone else cook you food, like people are petrified of cooking for me. Like it's really difficult because they're like, oh God, you know, I'm so scared. If, you know, I cook something for, you know, any of us that are cooks, it's probably a bit daunting for our friends to cook. I'm just thinking, listen, fresh fingers, oven, slices of white pappy bread happiest girl oh Sabrina you've got me there that I that's on my list fish fingers I mean it's not broke it's just the gesture of it and then that that therefore becomes a comfort memory because you remember when you were tired and your friend said listen it's not much but I made you a fish finger sandwich because I know you're knackered and you were working that becomes a comfort memory it embeds it in into your nostalgia bank and forever fish fingers if it wasn't stupidly already comfort food in your head you know that that's how these things are triggered there's a chemical there's an emotion attached to it have you ever tried waffle jenga with fish fingers 
Waffle Jenga with fish fingers. No. You don't, you don't I feel play. another poll coming on though. You don't play it like a game, but my friend, my dear friend Holly, who uh, was a food stylist on a couple of my books, she, um, her, her late father taught, used to feed her fish fingers with waffles and cheese slices all stacked up. Are we talking potato waffles? Like bird's eye? Yeah, no, oh, waffles. yeah, yeah, not your sweet, okay. not your sweet stuff. Oh, I was going to say, like, that sounds quite minging actually. <laughs> but no, potato no, waffles, I could do that. It's sacred, it's incredible. So, Paul, Paul made, my partner Paul made that for me a few times over lockdown, and that was a real comfort food that become a, a firm favourite in our house as well. So, yeah, you must try fish finger jenga. Are you allowed ketchup? Oh, you can put whatever you want on it. You can. <laughs> I don't, I don't understand this absurd desire for tartar sauce anywhere near fish fingers. I just, Ooh. it's Ooh. wrong. I, I love tartar sauce. I like a tartar sauce. Not with Sorry, fish Sabrina. Either tartar sauce or brown sauce on fish fingers. Oh. I know. <laughs> but this is the thing that we can all, you know, do whatever it is that brings us comfort. But John, you know, what you were just saying, that it's your partner who made it for you. And so maybe some of the comfort came from the fact that you hadn't cooked it yourself, that it was someone who you love had done this for you. I think so, yeah. Because when I was growing up, my mum was the only cook in our house. Right. No one else ever cooked for us. I sometimes cooked, but it was primarily mum. And so there was always that kind of equation of love and food uh, for me and so when Paul cooks and Paul Paul isn't a regular cook shall we say when he cooks he's a good he's an okay cook um and when he makes waffle jenga it's great uh, but yeah for him to do that for him to put himself out of his comfort zone and make a real mess in the kitchen just to make me feel nurtured well that is that's comfort that's comfort yeah. I think the very first line of um, Nigel Slater's memoir is it's impossible, something like, it's impossible not to love someone who makes you toast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, Although, yeah. when Paul made fish finger sandwiches during lockdown, and I did, I think I posted about this on Instagram, if this is the sort of mushroom top of the slice of white cheap bread, so you need a couple of mushroomy top, he put the fish fingers on that way, mm. which I think is wrong. It's got to be that way, hasn't it? I think it depends how big your fish fingers are. Just regular bird's eye, nothing, nothing special. Mm, yeah. I think I'd just take it however they come. I'd be grateful if anyone did that. So. <laughs> I'm, I'm particular about As it. long as they buttered into the corners, that's my only thing. Because I butter every piece of toast for people into the corners. And I don't, cannot understand people who don't butter into the corners. I agree with you on that one. <laughs> <laughs> but, so you, the fish finger thing is... Obviously, it's very satisfying and it's nostalgia and all the childhood stuff. Um, but I was looking through um, your lovely comfort book, John, earlier. And um, for anyone who um, stupidly doesn't have the book, you, you should get it and see that it's done by almost criteria of what comfort foods can be. And one of those is crunchy, isn't it? Is it called crunchy? Something crunchy, yes. Yeah. So every chapter yeah. something, something cheesy, something pillowy, something crunchy. Because I find that when I crave food, it's often a, a characteristic rather than actual dish. So I think, oh, I could just sink my teeth into like maybe a bow bun or even a, a McDonald's fillet of fish. You know, that kind of squishy. Yeah. Sometimes it's something cheesy, something crunchy. So yeah, I always categorize comfort food by its characteristics. I thought that's really lovely. I did some fish fingers the other day and they weren't crunchy and it wasn't the same. For some yeah. reason they hadn't crunched and I was like, what's the point? Yeah. It's just, and then you realise just how those different things play, you know, play into it. Um, you know, one of the lovely, one of the many, many lovely recipes in Simply Sabrina is um, you have some gorgeous soups. 
and you say in there about soup you know being you know really I think you say about one of them it's rich decadent comforting you know a warming wonder and that's another thing isn't it about you comfort food maybe if you make it whether it's being made for you or it's an instant thing or if you're doing it for yourself literal warmth around it yeah I think you know, I was a, probably a slow convert to soups if, if hand on uh, heart, uh, if I'm honest, but I like a particular types of soups, so you still can't win me over with everything, but I think when I do make soups, and I know that I love that particular combination, I go big because <clears throat> it's just, it is comforting, and also you can have it with like a sandwich dipper on the side, or if you're, you can have it with salad, it's so, it's so easy to sort of mix other things with it, and um, you know, and I don't hold back on things like butter and cream, I don't believe in holding back on uh, flavour in simple dishes because I think actually they're the ones that benefit from a knob of butter and a vat of cream. Um, so I yeah, made two soups this week for that exact reason because I was feeling a bit sort of throaty and sniffly because of the change of weather. So cauliflower, I love cauliflower soup. So mm. cauliflower, cumin and then um, a chicken noodle soup from one of my other books because it just it just makes you feel good and it is it's good food you know it's you don't need to go and have a load of stuff with stock cubes and fillers I never use stock cubes just because I'll just always put an onion a carrot and a stick of celery in it kind of does the same thing no judgment on stock cubes I've got you know use ready-made stock but it's just easy it's one less thing to own if you've got a bit of fresh veg and you know it's doing you good even with the vat, vat of cream in it <laughs> what I do for the for the stock is, you know, when I've got all my like carrot peelings and um, potato peelings and any any vegetable uh, detritus that you don't want to eat, I always put it into bags or Tupperware and put it in the freezer, and then I roast it gently a little bit, and then I make a stock with all of that, and it's just it's so good, you know, onion skins, all of that crap, you know, yeah. save that, don't throw it away. Lovely. And it's nice to be able to kind of draw on those things. I think sometimes you want comfort food. You don't necessarily want to do just a convenience tin of something. You want something which is going to feel nutritious. Yeah. You kind of reach for things in the freezer. And you know, so you're sort of winning all around. You've got the, the comfort of the way it's going to taste, but also you haven't having got a slog over. I think make, making those things as easy as possible is a real win, isn't it? Sometimes it's the discipline as well of it. You know, if you're making a chicken, chicken broth and you have to sit there skimming the, the top of the broth, it can be a really meditative process, can't it? And you might not necessarily fancy a bowl of it at the end. You might think, actually, I'm going to go and get a curry. But having done that process, having gone through it, you've actually, it's kind of, it's almost like a self-discipline. It's a kind of, come on, pull yourself together. If you can control this chicken broth, you can control your world and you'll be okay. It's that kind of mindset, isn't it? Well, I think that's really interesting. And to what degree, when you were saying about your cornflake phase, and then you came out of your cornflake phase, to what degree was that conscious of doing that to move into what you've just talked about of then kind of you know, emotionally gaining from doing that more meditative process of making things? Yeah, I'm not sure whether it was conscious or just was it kind of was the natural ev evolution of, you know, mental health and depression and, and being stressed from the, from the lockdown. I don't know if I actually forced myself to do it, but perhaps when I was more fortified with the strength to actually go and do that, then I was saying to myself, come on, you'll be okay, lad. So rather than a kind of... Um, medication it was more of a meditation on on the position i'm in now rather than how i was mm. um, but yeah food is a very powerful tool for for, for trying to at least make and I, I think sabrina touched on this earlier to try and maintain routine in the face of complete absence of routine and uh, it's one of the most powerful tools we have in our, our mental health armory i think is, is food 
but thinking about that routine, Sabrina, was there a point during lockdown when there were just so many blooming meals to make that it starts to go the other way? Um, yeah, I think probably McDonald's Gate was a good <laughs> thing. It was a good time because I was like, I've had it now. I, I we hadn't been to supermarkets either, so it's like my neighbours were dropping off milk and far being far being you know, I'm not a hoarder, like, for lockdown, but, like, Persians are hoarders. We've got everything and, like, 15 kilos of it. Like, I didn't have to hoard for lockdown, so I had most of the stuff here, most of my freezer full, just because I'm a chef and I'm always needing to cook and test and whatnot. So fresh stuff was coming in from other people. I really wasn't having much contact with the outside world, and my whole job was running a two- to three-cover restaurant here, my mum, my partner, and, you know, just cooking everything that we couldn't get from, you know, Chinese, Japanese, Persian, Spanish, literally internationally, if you look at my Instagram for like a good couple of months, it was just a different thing every day, because I just needed the sanity of investing into, in, in process, like get up, you know, run your shift in the kitchen, and then once lunch is served and cleared away, focus on what you're doing for dinner, and it just, it kind of, it saved me, you know, I don't suffer from mental illness, but I think you don't have to suffer from mental illness to have been affected mentally through lockdown, just because if you're a control freak, grade A control freak here, that you have no control over the situation. So I think even people who don't ordinarily suffer under duress of, you know, different situations, I think everyone suffered something because there was just uncertainty in the air and I think a lot of people turn to cooking and baking book sales have you know gone up rather massively and also people have been cooking you know the amount of people are like oh I've discovered your books or this person's books or that person's books you know I've had time to cook so it was you know it's an interesting time observing other people's patterns and realizing oh pretty much just the same once we'd gotten over that shock mm. hurdle because there was definitely the sofa cornflake phase for sure and I definitely went through probably several boxes of scampi fries <laughs> in that in that period, you know. But that's kind of. You, but I you... found it. Sorry, go I was going to say I found it surprising on social media how many people sort of immediately kind of leapt over the cornflake phase and kind of were straight into just doing loads and loads. And I have to say, I found it quite a pressure professionally and personally that suddenly it felt like peers, but also friends who don't work in the industry were suddenly just doing so much and posting what seemed like this extraordinary scale of culinary activity which I which I did find quite a pressure when I was still sort of slightly in my version of cornflake phase it was sourdough just ev everywhere but I think that you know, everyone getting into sourdough is part of what you're saying isn't it Sabrina you know, people wanting the process what you're saying John about you know, the meditative thing about about doing it Completely. You know, did you, John, did you have a, because you know, a lot of people I'm sure still think of you as being you know, Bake Off and baking being the lead thing of what you do. Did you have a rise in people reaching out asking you for baking advice, yeah. tips, recipes? I found that I was actually putting loads of baking recipes out there. I was baking pretty much every day for a good oh, two months of the lockdown and I just filmed it and I just thought, you know what, if people want to bake along and I was so surprised that how many people actually baked along with me and I think baking is definitely one of those comfort foods because the process of that is entirely mathematical scientific meditative because of those you know those things that you have to engage your brain for it's completely completely uh, therapeutic 
um, if not a bit stressful at times, but that's okay. And yeah, I just found that people were so obsessed with baking again. It really reignited so many passions across the world for people to try uh, more patisserie style bakes, uh, more basic bakes. It was a really exciting time. Um, but yeah, having, having said that, after about week five, I then did feel that, that pressure again of like having to, to do it every day. I started off wanting to do it and I enjoyed it, but then it became quite a pressurized thing where I kind of felt like if I wasn't doing it, I was feeling a bit guilty, um, but I quickly got over that, yeah. Were people more drawn to the basic simpler bakes or to the uh, more complicated patisserie style? It was a mix really. I think generally the more basic simple stuff was what people were going for. And in my savoury tutorials as well, things like knife skills, how to chop an onion, people went crazy for that because a lot of, lot of home cooks will read our books in which we explain, you know, if you want to chop an onion the, the chef way, I hate that word, but if you want to, here's how. Um, but people sometimes just skip that because the whole idea of doing it properly is, it puts people off, you know, but that's not why we cook. Um, but when people have the time and they want to engage in those kind of new skills and new ventures, then yeah, they, they were really keen to learn those, those uh, really hot tips. Sabrina, what did you find that people were reaching out to you for during lockdown for things to kind of help them through? Do you know what? The, the funny thing is at the beginning, I started doing a few little videos only because people were like, I don't have this and I don't have that. And I, you know, I just, did a few very simple store cupboard raids and then I thought do you know what this feels too much like work and I kind of pulled it aside um but I think interaction I'll be honest mm, I, think, I, don't, I don't you know I think the interaction is probably what people craved more than anything would have provided the biggest comfort because it it was almost it's that mutual experience that we're all going through. You know, I, the, I remember this one moment. Now I don't follow this person on Instagram, Kim Kardashian. You know, they come up viral. And it just, maybe it's obvious to other people. It just occurred to me. I thought, oh, wow. She, you know, people all over the world, everyone is going through this. This will be the one time in our lifetimes and probably, hopefully, the only time in our lifetimes where we are all in the same boat and the one thing that's most important right now is those little requests when people message me and go you know i'm just about to do this but i can't find any of this you know can i use chickpea flour this but you know can i might of course you can or use jam or use chutney or you know use vinegar whatever and i think it's actually more about the interaction that proved to be the most important thing and it kind of almost breathed a whole new life into uh, relationships online with the people that interact with you. Because it's always like all of us have that, you know, percentage of people that are regular communicators with us on our social media that we're used to seeing their names pop up and we interact with and are kind enough to do that. But I think it just provided a lot of people of all walks of life and careers with time to do these things so I think that was probably the, the was the little inqu inquiries and then just like the human element of you know people sometimes saying do you know what I'm just not having a good day I'm sorry for asking you these questions I just can't get my head around it and I'm like do you know what I'm not either that's fine you can use this you can use that no worries that you know that kind of interaction it, it's 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 mutual it's two-way it's not oh yes well i'm so happy to have helped you it's 
it's a two-way thing it's feel good it, that's a comfort in itself and yes it's centered around food and it's centered around social media but i think that for me was one of the strongest things because in the absence of seeing my friends i'm a social butterfly i want to see and mix with people and i had my wings clipped and it took me months to realize why i was so down because i'm not normally somebody that is particularly down i can sort of be usually quite balanced but you know that that's what it was in social media help me help provide a, a, a thread of comfort to me that's so interesting because so often we hear about social media being um well, having the opposite impact really upon people so you know, finding a positive you know, mental health angle from using social media is you know, a nice a nice refreshing change really and i think you know, I, I <laughs> indeed i do think food is a lovely conduit for achieving that because it's so well, it's something that obviously affects us all and so it's a nice you know, accessible way into it we've been doing we we're talking earlier about the borough market cookbook club and we've had to do it you know, differently during this phase and we've just been doing food conversations really on zoom online with people and it's been really interesting the degree to which people have said they have found it um well good well i suppose good you know good for their own individual mental health to just be sort of gathering together with people and sharing thoughts and anxieties or uh, positive stories about you know their food experiences asking you know questions and things i think that using foods that doing that is interesting in a, in a sort of comforting level that goes beyond whether it's cooking or eating and brings me on to something about um food tv shows um and uh i saw a tweet earlier john from you about nigella's got a new show coming out at christmas uh and uh i think john i'm gonna get it wrong but john wrote a lovely tweet about just how good you know those tv shows make you feel yeah, they do. They really do. I mean, when I was at university, it, it could be like the middle of July and I'd be going through a bit of stress and a bit of depression. So I'd just close all the blinds and I'd just watch Nigella's Christmas Kitchen on repeat because I just kind of, it's that fantasy, isn't it? I think what Nigella's TV shows offer is, I hate the word, the phrase lifestyle aura because it's so, just so cringe, but they offer a kind of fantasy, a kind of, um, it's not, it's clearly not real. And I think she plays up to that. And and the recipes are very real, but the whole kind of pottering around is just so lovely and whimsical. And I think you can easily get lost in that. Whereas a lot of TV chefs are very brutal and very, very obnoxious and, and manly in a way, which I think is quite sickening. Uh, whereas this is much more gentle and, and almost spiritual. I mean, that sounds really cringe in itself, but it is almost that kind of like, I'm at one now. <laughs> I'm at one with Nigella and everything's okay. But I think that is why people love those shows, not just Nigella, but people love watching cooking shows. Anyway, you know, food, food is managing to give them that comfort, even if they're not then going to get up and cook it or, you know, yeah. or, or associate with it in a practical sense. It's still doing that. But it's interesting that you're saying it's particularly the Christmas show. Yeah, uh, Christmas and me, we have a very, very strange relationship. No, it's, not, it's gorgeous. Christmas, Christmas and comfort food is the perfect. You know, Christmas yeah. is the time of comfort, and that's when I'll indulge in real comfort foods and, and eat eat with just for eating sake um but yeah i think christmas shows are particularly good but is that that hook together isn't it? the nostalgia of christmas and you know, the whole thing but it's sabrina thinking about you know, the tv work that you, know, you do you know, on saturday you were on saturday kitchen um you know, doing a, a storm and obviously that's a you know a huge you know, hit show for people on a saturday morning to 
to partly be excited and enthused by but I think that's, you know, that Saturday morning slot I think is also also about people getting a little bit of comfort and reassurance about the shape of their weekend or even the shape of life you know generally. I think the thing about uh, Saturday Kitchen is a lot of people are either not from the day before or the week the week that's just passed or maybe they went out or you know finally met their friends for dinner at the end of the week maybe not right now but so sometimes you watch it, even if you hadn't planned to watch it, you wake up and you're pottering around and you switch on the telly and they're like, oh, so, uh, you know, it's a cup of tea. It's, you know, sort of little skits of, uh, you know, different chefs in there, you know, Floyd, and then you get Bob Nigella. And then, you know, it's, it's just a bit of a mixed bag. And if you're a foodie, then, then bonus, because, you know, a lot of people are, a lot of people who are foodies, you know, don't cook, but just like all the kind of watching of that stuff. So... Well, I think that's another way of, you know, food connecting, you know, <laughs> saying the same thing in some ways, but connecting on an emotional level that is, you know, it is about the cooking, it is about the eating, but it's also about a broader, you know, emotional experience as well sometimes. Yeah, and I think, you know, the thing about shows like that is it kind of allows for the for a different kind of diversity, you know, I was one of the first sort of non-restaurant chef that they sort of brought onto the show when back in 2014 and I was a girl and I didn't have a restaurant and it was a new thing and they really made a concerted effort to pack in as many new talent as they could at that time and I think you know it's nice to have Leo uh, sorry Theo uh, Randall who's a consummate restaurant chef you know incredibly trained and has a different discipline to me and is just you know fantastic because a lot of people do tune in for that but then a lot of people like that but uh, don't necessarily have the skill set to replicate some of the higher end you know Michelin star end of chefs and they kind of what what I like about what I do is it's not complicated I'm not preaching anything to you that you couldn't do even if you would never cooked before in your life and and it's nice that they've given me that little sort of hold to do that and because I think watching people like Nigella for me is there's an there's an ethereal escapism that's involved whether you can do it or not I find that with some chefs no matter whether male or female or whatever I look and I think I could never do that like you know for me Bake Off is that show I am not a gifted baker so by default it, I think I've only ever seen one series because it frightens me and gives me anxiety not because of anything but I just can't do those things and thermometers and ovens and you know I literally would have my heart in my mouth the episodes that I watch so you know watching somebody who's quite chill and going yeah I'm gonna do this and it's quite beautiful it, it's soothing and quite relaxing and that kind of falls in line with the comfort element i mean i made a, a kebab in a pan that takes 18 minutes in the oven because that's comfort food because it's easy you know maybe comfort food mostly reputably when we're sort of drunk <laughs> you know people crave a kebab but it has sort of come into our homes because ultimately in times like this those are the recipes that are going to be what people want whether a veggie version or you know a, a kind of meat version but people want comfort that's the the pizzas the pastas the the pies the soups the stews the meatballs the breads of the world those are the foods that every single culture has a version of for good reason it was poor food it was staple it was meat made with little scraps of meat if at all and they have stood the test of time and become the most popular and the most famous and long-standing recipes in all cultures you know for, for very good reason I don't know if uh, a lot of this trendy sort of I don't think quinoa will ever make it to any <laughs> to anyone's top 10 list of comfort food because 
it's not what we are as human beings. Yeah, it, it, it takes us back to that carb, fat, sugar thing that we were talking about before. <laughs> I think. Um, so Sabrina, it sounds like you would say that you, you're drawn towards savouries for your comfort foods rather than the sweets. I, I, yeah, I, I will do, but what I will, I'll totally back up what John said because I found myself baking. I'm, I'm a, a nervous baker of other, I, I've got all these principles in my head that I know exactly how to riff cakes because I've taught myself these basic principles that work for me. They're very basic. And I write those kind of recipes in my books because I'm scared of kitten thermometers and things like that. But I baked, you know, Ravneet Gill. Oh, yes. oh my God. I've never in my life cooked from anyone's book apart from Nigella's as many times as I have from that book. I made easily over 150 batches of her cookies for um people literally was giving them to the neighbors making them for ourselves giving them to my um you know in-laws and things like there's freezer batches to be delivered just because it was so much comfort so normally yes i am a savory girl i'd rather have a starter and a main rather than a main and a dessert um but comfort has its place sugar has its place but definitely cookies person rather than a very very rich sticky cakey yeah basically john whilst you know as i say i'm sure a lot of people do still associate you with the baking and the sweet perfect plates and indeed you know comfort are very much savory books as much as or more than their yeah. sweet books personally for you rather than professionally the, when you're thinking about comfort food how does that savory sweet balance shape itself out oh it's it's savory with a bit of sweetness on the side definitely sloppy um, and you know that kind of tooth sticking white bread bow bunny kind of situation it's got to just be yeah it's going to be heavy I just I just want heavy comfort food and that's it was difficult to write the comfort food book because most people already have one ideas of comfort food so this was a kind of offering of like comfort with a twist with different ideas and different flavor combinations and that's why I brought it back down to the kind of characteristics because it's the characteristics sloppy crunchy pillowy the, the things that i crave the most but yeah interestingly i think i'd, I'd take savory over sweet mm. i really would take savory over sweet if it's like fried chicken um disco chips or poutine that's my kind of comfort food sloppy dirty food you know dirty food in a good way not in the whole clean dirty um just good good grub <laughs> just good grub um that's we're getting very close to the um, section where we're going to take questions from um, a lot of people who are watching. So if anyone has a question, do use the Q&A um, on Zoom and we'll get to questions um, in a second. But we're, we're on the chat, we've got quite a few people talking about um, during lockdown, people being either Team Sourdough or Team Banana Bread. <laughs> yeah, there were so many, so many people were doing Sourdough and so many people were doing Banana Bread. I don't think I did either, actually. I just... I didn't. <laughs> I didn't. That's, no, I, I did didn't. banana cake. Okay. I was like, oh, banana bread. I'm like, it's not bread. <laughs> I don't know what the differences are, but in my opinion, cake is soft and sweeter. I don't know. You're the expert on this, John. What is the difference between banana bread and banana cake? I find that banana bread usually has a higher banana ratio than banana cake um, and it has a more muffiny texture. So there's a lot more liquid in the ingredients, whereas a cake is more kind of butter your pound cake, butter, sugar, flour and eggs. Um, whereas I find banana breads, the best banana breads are those that employ a kind of muffin ratio. So you've got a similar amount of flour to liquid, whether that's banana and buttermilk or banana and milk or yogurt. So they have that more 
kind of puddingy cake, a puddingy muffiny texture. That's my that's my theory anyway. And of course, it's baked in a loaf tin, so it's a bread. <laughs> Very technical. Oh, oh. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe maybe I should have said mine was a bread, but I don't know. It seems wrong. I refuse to call mine a bread. You can call it whatever you want. It's up, you know. Why do we think banana bread became a thing? Like we think sourdough became a thing because people, we think people you know, were enjoying the process. Almost the complicated thing about it was almost thing that was appealing in a you know in a psychological way. But banana bread. What was behind banana bread? I think the sourdough as well. Just going back to that was also because the shops were completely out of yeast and flour. I think people were kind of forced to turn to this almost medieval. Um, you know, it's kind of, I bet they were churning their own butter and milking their own cows if they had to. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't know what it was, it was with banana bread. Maybe people bulk bought bananas and they were all going off in the fruit bowl. <laughs> yeah, I don't know either. I, I just, but I, there was one good recipe that I tried uh, and it was uh, Millie Taylor, who's actually a friend of mine. And for about two years, I didn't make it. And then I thought, well, stuff this, everyone's making it. So I made it and I was like, yep, okay, fair play. That is really good. And I was like, love you. But it was like about 50 steps too much for what I was looking for. I want everything in a bowl, like really savagely bashed together and then poured in a loaf tin or a cake tin. I'm, I'm just, I'm a, such a baker folk, such a baker folk. But I think that idea that you're saying there, Sabrina, it really comes through in Simply as well, about just wanting to kind of break things down. <clears throat> Excuse me. Wanting want to really kind of distill flavours down into something which people can achieve with minimum fuss and in a way that's just going to, you know, taste good, make them feel good, but without, as you say, sort of 50 steps together. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting because when Persiana came out people are like oh she's the Persian girl with all the Persian recipes and Persian everything and I was thinking it's, it's actually not all Persian but you know whatever and then I think people expected book two to be exactly the same as book one and were probably a little bit disappointed that it wasn't but over time you know if I wrote five Persian books nobody'd buy them but over time I think what has naturally happened is I've sort of my my natural style I think it was always there I didn't cultivate it but it's like really simple using what you've got at home again and again and again in many different guises can I strip something back yes will I garnish something just to make it look pretty no all the answers that you want at home because you know you don't want sort of extract of you know bat's tail that you bought for six quid and covered <laughs> in like 2026 20, and blame Sabrina because it you needed half a pinch. Nobody wants that. We want to use cheap and cheerful stuff that in a pinch is readily available in a supermarket because not everybody can find certain things because some people live out in the sticks and whatnot. So yeah, that kind of works for me, keeping things simple. And I it, it's it's been a real lesson that I don't look elsewhere at what other people are doing and it's really difficult because you see stuff on Instagram and feel inadequate loads of you know a lot you know so just like Bake Off makes me feel inadequate the things I want to do but can't so I've just realized stick to what you do people say to you like you know I'm lucky people say you know I know your books I know your recipes will work I mean because they're really simple is the real trick there stick to that there's no shame in that and actually i'd rather be the book that's stained and covered in crap from the, the and you know shredded to bits than the beautifully written and beautiful beautiful bound book that you pick off the cupboards every five years to do that incredible dinner party that people talk about for however long but i'd rather be the everyday girl it's a conscious choice i made and that means sticking to what you know not trying to be any more clever or or you know fangled with that 
that's what people want simplicity and the ability to change things up and the confidence people want confidence yeah. when they get our recipes no matter who you are that's yeah. the best way to win an audience is to give them confidence with your recipes and then yeah. you're, you're all right after that well said um questions guys right okay so uh john i'm gonna go for you for this what is your go-to lockdown dinner dish Oh my God, carbonara. I was making so much carbonara over lockdown. Um, all, primarily because I had a glut of egg and a load of pecorino cheese. Um, like I'm talking a whole, nearly a whole wheel of pecorino cheese. Uh, so I... Um, made, How, why did you have so much? I just really like pecorino okay. cheese. I much prefer it <laughs> I think it's, it's got that kind of like dirty flavour to it. You know, it's a bit more, uh, a bit more musty. And uh, yes, yeah, so I just, I made lots of lots of carbonara so much that it made me a little bit sick of carbonara again it's that greasy greasy yeah greasy. so you're a bit over it now I'll, I'll come back to it you know it's one of the loves of my life is carbonara but i'll um and i'm just having a hiatus from it yeah. right now sabrina your go-to lockdown dinner dish um i think probably my house curry and chicken shawarmas it's quite standard really in my house there's a few dishes that are really quite standard that we do very very often but yeah shawarma's probably got one of the biggest airings in that house curry literally I mean, half the stuff in simply is the stuff i make all the time so lots of that stuff got good many appearances uh, over lockdown because it's comforting yeah um okay this is a really good question so i want you to plan your perfect three course comfort food meal all all three courses coming together to be your perfect comfort food meal i'm going to talk slowly to buy you time to think about it first Something. person who's uh, uh, sabrina go go um definitely but you see uh, my three courses won't necessarily resemble a starter and a main because i don't think okay. i eat like that so oh. I, I definitely need something like a cauliflower cheese or a mac and cheese, 100%. I don't care whether that's a stuffed to main or a dessert. Um, I, love, um, I love things like Lancashire hot pot. If you had to pick a dish in the whole country that I love the most, Lancashire hot pot. I know, I'm saying this living in Yorkshire, talking to two people from Lancashire. Um, <laughs> I probably get a bit hunted down after this is done, but something like a Lancashire hot pot and then pudding i see pudding i couldn't eat too much more stodge after that my favorite desserts are things with like strawberries or wild strawberries and pistachio and a little bit of meringue and a little bit of light sponge and then something so maybe like a pistachio and strawberry trifle something like that would be like that sounds good can i uh, have bread as well you can yeah any particular kind um i a really good rustic baguette with some stonkingly good butter Good shout. Uh, John, your three course comfort food meal. I think it would have to be um, a good curry, maybe my, my sag halloumi, uh, which is like halloumi cheese made in, like sag paneer, but with halloumi cheese, um, which is heaven. Um, but I think that's probably a bit too light, actually. I think I'd have to go for chips and gravy, uh, <laughs> then fried chicken with like Korean spices and, and um, a brioche burger bun, so like a Korean fried chicken burger. And then it would have to be a sticky toffee pudding with both custard and ice cream. Wow. Yeah. That sounds absolutely amazing. Yeah. And I, I agree with Sabrina on the baguette, a good baguette with, with a nice sour butter, just to make it a bit more fancy. But can you, can you make it and send some to me? Because obviously oh. I'm rubbish. 
I'll, I'll, I'll hurl one like a javelin. Just throw one over the bed, oh, yeah. Billy. <laughs> Oh, that's absolutely brilliant. That sounds so gorgeous. And, and um, you, you know, touched on a couple of things that are regional, you know, Lancaster in, in those instances. And I think that, that comfort food can be that as well, kind of very much connected with home, which doesn't just mean about uh, the food you had around the dinner table growing up, but you know, about home, whatever that means nationally or regionally you know, as well. Um, another question, which is, uh, again, to both of you, uh, whether or not you hosted um, or joined any online food classes over lockdown. No, only oh. only Instagram, only Instagram. So John, you were doing stories that were cook-alongs, is that right? Yeah, basically, tutor story, story tutorials, basically. Um, and that's, that's all I did. I don't think I could get anything else online. Sabrina, did you do any um, you know, classes or anything like that? Um, no, I did get quite a lot of requests, but the problem with my particular kind of food is if I'm going to teach you how to make Persian rice or something that's technique led, like I really need you to see the grain of rice change colour from creamy alabaster to brilliant white. I need to be able to show you. I have done a couple of charity um, masterclasses and that was like, oh, okay, that's not so bad. And obviously for the book launch, I've done some demos. So I'm toying with the idea, but more kind of private one-to-one -one stuff because I like to be able to give people all the attention that they need in order to have to gain the confidence I'm hoping they will by the end of the class so yeah I think it's it's a bit of a bit of a minefield and I think if you're going to charge people money especially like you've got a little bit of an obligation to make sure you're able to deliver the quality and the value considering it's online so Mm, yeah absolutely um we're going to come back to comfort food in a second but we've got another question which isn't really about comfort food but i think people are enjoying having the option to ask you guys stuff um if you could travel anywhere again where would you go and what would you be craving to eat mm. I, i'd go straight to rita sodi's restaurant in new york isodi and she makes the most incredible um artichoke and mushroom lasagna and uh, I tried to do a, a replica of it in the book, but it's not, not quite as good, I have to say. Um, but it's, it's the most delicious thing I've ever eaten was this artichoke and mushroom lasagna. And it was just, it was millions of layers and it was so creamy and cheesy. Lovely. Sabrina, where would you go and what would you be craving to eat? I think I'm planning my first trip anywhere, probably spring onwards, uh, Venice. I'm dying to go back to Venice. I, I went there for the first time in August last year and followed it with three other trips. Um, and I just, seafood binge is the best way to describe it. Venice is, you know, really the best place to, to eat lots and lots of different shellfish and local treats. And I absolutely love it. So Venice is definitely on the cards and maybe a little meat trip to Florence after. <laughs> Mm. if you're there you might as well hey once you know. well, just hop on the train it's only a couple of hours it's much easier than you know it's just done and then you're in a whole other region with a whole other cuisine it's spectacular lovely um coming back to comfort food we have someone who's saying that their comfort food is baked beans on toast pimped with a drizzle of good olive oil and lots of parmesan on top mm. that is my drunken that's <laughs> that's really yeah that's genius the parmesan actually makes it I don't do the olive oil, but I remember one day coming home at God knows what time in the morning with my friend and we were like, let's, you know, let's fridge raid. And I found beans and I was like, I've got cheddar somewhere in here and I couldn't find it. So I put Parmesan over it. And it, honestly, it's like elevating it next level. It's, it's probably all that umami business, but beans is 
bloody amazing. I love beans. It's <laughs> never, it goes with everything or just on its own cold from a tin is spectacular. Oh, dirty thing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love beans, but I have to have them hot and I have to add like at least 60 grams of butter, salted, good quality salted butter. I'll try that. Oh my gosh, buttery beans, bloody hell, best thing on I like I like that in a in a in a potato when you open it, it's been baking properly, like not on microwave, but like a proper one. And yeah. you open it and then that mixes some maybe, but it also has to have a good kilo of cheddar on top. <laughs> the nine thousand calorie treat. But it is, and I think, yeah, I think what I've loved about this conversation is that we talked a bit now about you know, the regrets and stuff, but what hasn't come up, and, in, and I mean this in a positive way, is about guilt, and that we've been talking about indulgent food, you know, like stodgy food, carby food, fatty food, but about embracing it and using it in a way that is going to enhance how you feel, maybe not you know, every meal every day, mm. but that we're not, you know... <sighs> expecting people to feel guilty about having a load of butter on their beans if that's what they want to have every now and then it's going to make them feel good i think it's actually like sanity for life isn't it to like have a balanced diet i dieted my whole life and i turned into quite a large young lady in my 20s and only sort of became relatively this size in my mid-30s and was the unhappiest I ever was. And the more I dieted, the fatter I got. And I, it did, you know, made me completely do lally, like mentally, because, you know, I had scales and all these things. Diets are rubbish. The only people that need to diet are those who've got genuine medical conditions. Um, and what I would say is I won't cut out on cream and I won't cut out on butter. But will I throw it over everything, you know, just for the sake of it? Of course not, because, you know, you need to have salad in one hand and cake in the other. If you know that those are the foods you like, then you have to allow for those things. I don't believe in cutting out entire food groups unless you have an allergy and you have to, of course, because it's, it's hard. It's mental to have to keep that kind of balance and the stress of telling yourself I can't have butter. It becomes an anxiety. It's that becomes an illness that we breed into people telling them, oh, you know, grain is bad for you, carbs are bad for you. It's nonsense, but there are definitely a set of ingredients and the types of butter that are better for you. And But just don't think about it because the stress of thinking about it kill you sooner than bloody well eating it yourself. I think, go on, John. I completely agree with that. I think the whole range of food isn't just healthy or unhealthy. It's a huge spectrum, isn't it? And as long as you're within that spectrum somewhere and you are happy and you're, you feel stable and you make the choices that you want to make, then, then it's okay. I actually wanted to call comfort uh, when I was writing the proposal, I wanted to call it keen eating as a kind of rebuttal to the clean eating movement. Um, but then I realized that comfort food is much more sacred than that. It's not just a rebuttal. It's not just a kind of middle finger up at the lycra clad clan, although I'm one of them at the minute because I'm in the gym a lot. Um, but it's not, you know, it's not a kind of, screw you it's it's much more of a you do you this is me and this is what i'm doing and i'm happy to eat my waffle jenga i'm happy to eat my buttery beans and parmesan cheese and if you want to starve yourself then you do that i think you've both given us there just the kind of perfect ending to this conversation um it's been such a delight to talk to you both about all this thank you so much i know you both got huge things coming up serenia simply will continue to storm through it's such a gorgeous book huge congratulations and john you've just announced that you've got some telly stuff coming up yeah so it's the steph mcgovern show on channel four steph's back lunch when does that start that's launching in september and i'm going to be one of the studio cooks which i'm totally excited about because i've not done tv for a while now so a bit nervous but i'm, I'm excited but my, my copy of simply's coming tomorrow to bring it out. 
Watching mine. Thank you very much. <laughs> I'm going to have to get you to sign it at some point. I will. I love to. When once this distancing is not a thing anymore, there'll be hugs and signings yeah. and yeah. eating and cups of tea and all of that. Huge thanks to you both. Such an engaging and positive conversation. It's been a complete joy to talk to you. Um, so farewell to you guys and to all of you who have been watching. Um, I really hope you've enjoyed it. That's the end of this series of Borough Talks, but hopefully we'll be back um, with more of these discussions on food and food culture. But for now, from Borough Market and Borough Talks, farewell. Thank you guys. Bye. Thank you.